It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, a rookie error. How a young reporter and a Facebook post caused a jury to be thrown out. Plus, a move that could see journalists, academics and advocacy groups lose access to the records they need to expose tax dodging, shell companies and corporate exploitation. And Australia has the fastest falling newspaper circulation in the world. How close are we to the death of print? Joining me in the studio is investigative reporter and founder of michaelwest.com.au, Michael West. Hello. Hello. Plus, journalist and author of Born to Rule, the unauthorised biography of Malcolm Turnbull, Paddy Manning. Hello, Paddy. G'day. And on the line, legal affairs and investigative reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald, Michaela Whitburn. Hello, Michaela. Hi, Marcus. Yahoo 7 rookie reporter Crystal Johnson has done a bad, bad thing. She lifted a story from the Herald Sun article. That is, she tweaked the expression so that it doesn't read as outright plagiarism. This is pretty poor form, but it's also, sadly, pretty standard. The more damning offence was allegedly fleshing out the Herald Sun article with additional information. A Facebook post from someone involved in the trial. The golden rule about court reporting is... When a trial is in process, report only what is said in front of the jury. The article was taken down, but Justice Lex Lazary is still fuming. This is just another occasion on which some members of the media do not seem to properly understand their responsibilities in relation to the publication of material affecting a criminal trial. He continued, In this case, that lack of understanding is going to cause this trial to be terminated with all the associated inconvenience, cost and emotional consequences for both the accused and the family of the deceased woman. Michaela, what are the cardinal do's and don'ts of reporting on an ongoing trial? Yes, this is really interesting. Basically, you know, obviously a story has to be fair and accurate, but when there's a jury present, there are lots of other rules to which we're subject. Um, And basically the rule of thumb is that anything that is not said in the presence of the jury cannot be reported. So you're on really safe ground if you turn up to the court case every day, observe when the jury is in the box, just report exactly on what you've heard. But when you start introducing material that you might have gleaned from, you know, Facebook pages or Google or your coverage of, you know, perhaps earlier trials involving the accused, then you're sort of running into really treacherous waters. And that's obviously what's happened Um, in this Yahoo 7 report when you're introducing material that's not before the jury uh, and that's considered prejudicial. I mean, it's quite interesting because a lot of prominent lawyers, including the Solicitor General in New South Wales, have pointed out that, you know, jurors are instructed not to go away and do searches. They're not supposed to be reading media coverage of these stories and, in fact, it would be an offence for them to do so. But nevertheless, the media is supposed to keep their reporting really straight and not introduce any material that would prejudice them if they did read it. So Crystal lives in Sydney. My guess is she didn't attend the Melbourne trial in person. If she's expected to sit at her desk and lift a story, is it fair game to lay the blame squarely at her feet? I mean, that said, she could have used the Victorian Supreme Court's website for details. No, and I think that this kind of goes to the heart of this particular case. Uh, The journalist in question has been criticised almost exclusively for her reporting of this trial. Obviously, she's been told to to write up this report by her editors. Uh, None of them have obviously seen a problem with the story, and that's interesting. Um, Whether or not it was legal, I don't know. Um, But this is sort of, it's quite a basic error. But if you're not in court and you don't know what the jury has seen and heard, uh, then you don't know what you should be reporting, essentially. 
When journalism budgets were cut, court reporters were some of the first to be cleared out. How has that space changed and how has the role of legaling changed? Uh, Well, I think that most media outlets do still have lawyers going over stories, but, you know, depending on the size of the outlet, there are fewer lawyers looking over stories and some of the smaller players do look to outlets like the Sydney Morning Herald and they're guided by what we're reporting Um, I guess the problem here is that we have a lot of media outlets that are just looking at our reports, seeing what sort of rates well online, and then producing these sort of churn articles based on what we've said without coming to court at all. Uh, And I guess some of those outlets don't have lawyers at all. Uh, The the younger lawyers are not necessarily sort of well advised by older heads, and they don't know what it is that they shouldn't be saying, and no one else is really picking up on that. News Corp has sort of gone to town with this story, really lauding their piece of original reporting and hanging out this young journalist to dry. Michael, do you think that those reports have been fair on this young journalist and how have you interpreted this? Well, it's typical News Corp. I mean, I can't believe how sanctimonious they were in hauling this poor young reporter over the coals. I mean, it was a mistake and there was an error made, but clearly she has supervisors, she has bosses that should have known and perhaps her training should have uh, triggered some sort of understanding about contempt laws. But nonetheless, people make mistakes, and the Herald Sun makes an incredible amount of mistakes itself. So I thought that it was, you know, throwing stones in glass houses, really. Patty? Yeah, and it's a, you know, the problem is churning um, is now sort of ubiquitous. And um, so I was told recently that someone, you know, by someone who says that you sit at a newsroom these days and. Um, You'll hear the call go out, no byline on this one, please, because the reporter doesn't want their name associated with the story because all they're doing is copying someone else's work. And um, and it's an absolute disgrace, you know, that, uh, you know, the byline itself is a key accountability mechanism. Um, in this case, you know, a young reporter, um, you know, and this is the other problem with the business model, is that, um, you know, she probably hasn't had any training at all. Um, I mean, I, I don't know her from a bar of soap, but uh, but I'll bet you, you know, her her um, initiation into court reporting was uh, read that story and copy it, um, and uh, and so if the business model around it's just another example of you know what we're going to miss given that the business model around um, public interest journalism is collapsing, and uh, the court system they can try and blame reporters or they can try and blame editors, but. Um, really, what what it shows is that there is a public interest in finding a new model to support public interest journalism. Michaela, how much time and money will this cost to order a new trial? Do you think? Uh, well, I would imagine that tens of thousands of dollars, if not you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, to sort of kick off this trial again wouldn't be an unrealistic estimate. Um, so you know, it has a really um, significant impact on the the courts bottom line, I suppose. It's not only the courts and the reporter at the centre of this, there's also the accused, their families and the broader repercussions of this mistake. What do you think this could mean for the accused? Uh, Well, of course, I mean, no accused wants to be going through a trial twice. um, And you've sort of got to wait uh, a reasonable distance of time as well, so that um, any sort of negative consequence of these, this material being out there in the public domain, even though it's been removed now, uh, doesn't taint a future jury pool. So those, all those things need to be taken into account to ensure that the accused has a fair trial. 
um, which is why, you know, um, big media outlets take their responsibility uh, to report court proceedings fairly and accurately, really seriously. Yahoo is a pretty big um, media outlet True and um, clearly haven't taken it seriously in this case. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Well, in a time when suppression orders and contempt of court rules can be easily flouted from different jurisdictions, often without consequence, how reassuring is this case? Um, I think it is important. And we also saw a recent example in New South Wales where uh, a Supreme Court judge actually noted the coverage of the Harriet Rand trial and and said explicitly that uh, the sensationalised reporting of that trial in some quarters had resulted in a reduced sentence for her. Um, So judges are mindful of these issues, and I think we should be heartened that they take them seriously. Um, I do think that there are questions that need to be raised about the restrictions that are put on the media, irrespective of reporting in jury trials, because, you know, obviously jurors are instructed that they're not allowed to go away and Google and, you know, background about the accused, but they probably are. Um, And so whether or not we need to be subject to all of the restrictions that we are now, I don't know. I think some of them are probably a little bit unrealistic and are not moving with the digital time. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Marcus Costello and I'm speaking with Michael West, Paddy Manning and Michaela Whitbon. The ASIC Corporate Registry is a national database where over 2 million Australian companies file their business names, histories, financial records and ownership details. It's owned and operated by the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. Accessing this information costs money, so the registry makes money for the government. But in the 2014 budget, Tony Abbott announced the government would propose selling it off. Next week, a tender for a private company to manage the registry will go to market. However, more than 20 unions and civil society organisations have signed an open letter calling on the Turnbull government to stop the sale. Advocacy group GetUp claims, quote, it's a move that could see journalists, academics and advocacy groups lose access to the records they need to expose rampant tax dodging, shell companies and corporate exploitation. Michael, how important is this registry to the work that you do? And can you give me an example of when you've relied on the registry to expose wrongdoing? I've relied on this registry countless times. I've been looking at it every week for the past five years. And when I was at Fairfax, of course, I had the Fairfax balance sheet behind me to be able to order these things because it costs 38 bucks a pop to get a set of financial statements, let's say, from multinational, let's say, for eBay or American Express or Google. If you want to do a fair take on these companies, you've got to look over 10 years, so that's $380. Uh, this is this is after-tax money. It's big money. And so the idea that this information already is public, in inverted commas, is complete nonsense. Because the, if the public can't afford to access it, then it's just not public. So I've been having this wild goose chase recently around all these different ministries and around ASIC itself trying to get access to this information to continue my work on multinational tax avoidance. And they just keep on shoveling me from one ministry to the next, saying it's not our thing. You've got to go to the Ministry of Finance and the Financial Services, back to ASIC, back to Treasury, and so on. And I'm, I'm currently with Kelly O'Dwyer's uh, ministry, and she's just refusing to take phone calls. So the, the ultimate point is it's a boring but a very important story, this one, because public information should be free and easily accessible and that's what the government's own policy on the matter says yet they're flogging this thing for a one-off cash payment perhaps to a foreign multinational and of course they're not going to buy it 
unless they're guaranteed that they can continue to lift the charges. But already the charges for this public information are higher than any other country in the world. So I believe that in the UK and in New Zealand, it's free to access this information, and yet we charge so much for it, and it's indexed, it's a year-on-year profit for the government. So if it doesn't make economic sense to sell it off, what's the argument to sell it off? Well, it's just it's, it's the heroin addict wanting the one-off hit, isn't it? You know, <laughs> They're not thinking about tomorrow, they just want the heroin today. And that's the budgetary issue. You know, We want this billion dollars today, which we're going to get from selling this thing, and you know, who cares about tomorrow? It's as simple as that. Some of the speculations have been backroom deals, that this is in the interests of big business. Do you think there's something in that? Uh, I think the conspiracy theory that the Liberal Party is completely in the pocket of big business is, it has some merit, but basically it's conspiracy theory. There are dedicated politicians on both sides of politics, I think. I just think it's just got away. It's just one of those things they're counting on it for their budgetary numbers and nobody wants to go, hey, this is a really hopeless idea, guys. Why don't we can this? It's ridiculous because it makes no other it makes no economic sense either. I mean, free markets and democracies thrive on access to information. Otherwise, people aren't informed. They can't vote properly. I mean, it's a seriously fundamental issue. And I just think... I don't know whether it's a favour to anybody or not. Perhaps there has been some deal done. Who Who knows? But it's just a bad idea, and I think it's run away on them, and they think it's too late to stop it. So, Paddy, how might things be different under private ownership? Uh, well, it's it's exactly as um, Michael's just said, and as you know, the ACCC chairman Rod Sins came out and um, complained the other day that a lot of privatisations aren't working any longer in the public interest because cash-strapped governments looking to maximise the sale price when they get rid of these assets. Um, you know, do um, you know deals with uh, the um, purchasers to um, guarantee um, you know the ability to raise fees, or if it's in electricity, you know, uh, or to remove competition, or you know, there's all sorts of ways that under the contract you can make you can boost up the sale price by giving concessions to the buyer, and um, and those contracts are never released um, because they're commercial incompetence. And so the um, owner of the asset, which is us, um, we we do get a uh, you know, one-off kind of sugar hit uh, um, from the sale um, that helps the budget temporarily. But um, but in this case, uh, you know, it's not a huge amount of money. It actually makes very little difference to the Commonwealth finances a billion dollars once, and um, and and because this thing makes money uh, for ASIC already. Uh, it's, you know, the cost of delivering these, um, you know, uh, searches is fully, they're fully automated. Um, you know, you're just basically, it's, and it is in t- a completely repetitive uh, process of, you know, trying to find out, okay, for a given director or individual, say it's Malcolm Turnbull, who previously, by the way, when his communications minister opposed this sale, said it was a bad idea to put these, um, this uh, database behind a paywall. Uh, but now as Prime Minister seems unwilling to stop the sale. But say you want to find out what, what, how much money does Malcolm Turnbull own, how, what companies is he a director of, what shares does he have. Or say it's Nathan Tinkler, I've written another book about. You know, you'll find they've got 150 companies and um, and then you've got to, if you want to actually search each one, who, what are the shareholders and what are the assets of, of each company, you're pretty quickly, the bills start rising. And uh, and 
and certainly as a journalist and as an author, even as a journalist employed by a major media organisation, the patience of your editor for spending 30, 50, quickly up to hundreds, maybe into the thousands of dollars uh, to do an investigation, um, the patience runs out very quickly. Even academics get put off by the cost of doing these searches. And in fact, you know, the, the worst thing about the privatisation is it shuts the door forever on the idea that we would adopt the American model and just make this data freely available. You know, it's an important public accountability mechanism. It should be uh, free. The ASIC chairman, Greg Medcalf, has described the registry as, quote, a technology business, meaning it's essentially a database that needs to be managed. The government will retain ownership of the data once the registry is sold, but software upgrades of the registry will be undertaken by its private owner. So why does, why does that worry you? Because the successful bidder um, will, be, uh, will have a natural monopoly. Um, so it's never a great idea to privatise natural monopolies anyway, uh, and so, which is the single source of truth on you know, who owns what shares of which companies and, who, and which board seats. Um, so, uh, and the other thing is that they've got an interest in maximising earnings growth. And, uh, and so uh, it's one thing to try and argue that ASIC should be better funded uh, and able to, you know, uh, give us some kind of price relief um, and, you know, with a public interest justification. It's very hard to make that argument against a private owner. And it's a, it's a river of gold for the, for the government already. They get, seven, they get $60 million a year from the search fees, the multinational stuff I was talking about, and they get about seven to $800 million from company lodgement fees as well. Now, there's no reason to have them so high because big businesses can afford... Um, they can afford compliance departments, you know, where everybody, this is just an incremental cost. But small businesses have this huge burden of costs on them as well. Uh, you know, six, uh, seven to $800 million a year. The whole thing is ridiculous. There's no economic rationale for it. And there is a security issue as well, because let's say it's bought by a foreign uh, multinational company or whoever, by Macquarie Bank, let's say. Where is that data going to sit? On whose cloud is it going to sit? Will it sit on a cloud in Indonesia? In which case there are issues under the Patriot Act from the US. There's all sorts of jurisdictional things come up because, as you know, it's not one cloud where this sort of information is stored. There's backup clouds or ancillary clouds or whatever they call them. So there are, there, there are, there are data security issues. Who can get at it? There's the cost issue and there's the massive public interest issue. Given what the Panama Papers revealed about the prevalence of offshore tax havens. Does a proposal to privatise the registry come as a surprise? I'm not surprised. It's a money grab. and It's a short-term money grab. They're going to miss that billion dollars a year in revenue for a billion dollars cash in the hand. Given that Malcolm Turnbull was himself implicated in the Panama Papers, wouldn't Mm. you have thought that this is a strange coincidence of timing? You'd think that he'd be doing everything that he can in his power to ensure that transparency is utmost. I think it's less a Turnbull personal conspiracy issue. I mean, he's really, he knows people are going to spend the money if they want to come at it. The Labor Party will spend the money to come at it. They've already done that to examine his affairs in, in, uh, in the Cayman Islands, where he has some small investments. And that was, there was some justification in that, although that was a bit overblown. But it's more that I think he doesn't have control of the party. It's a compromise with the right. And he, there's only so many favours you get if you're not in a commanding position he wouldn't, I don't think he would personally want this to happen, uh, even though he probably may. I mean, who knows? He's got things overseas. It'll stop people sniffing around as much his own personal affairs. But 
I think it's more that it's a party thing. This thing's got momentum in the political sense. They're expecting a billion dollars to come into the budget from it. And uh, I think it's just got a way on them. You're listening to For the State. I'm Marcus Costello and I'm speaking to Michael West, Paddy Manning and Michaela Whitmore. It's been the story for over a decade. Print is dying. The rise of the internet has enabled people to sell things online that they used to have to advertise in the classified section of the newspaper. And people are no longer reliant on locally produced content to stay informed. But this week, Fairfax Media Chief Executive Greg Highwood has actually confirmed the midweek print editions of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and the Australian Financial Review will, quote, inevitably close. Michaela, what are readers missing out on if print dies? Well, I guess the question is which readers. There are some readers, obviously, who have migrated over to digital and they're getting a pretty, um, you know, full experience online. They can watch videos. They get all the same stories that would be in the paper and, and many more. Um, but there's also still a significant readership that only consumes the print product, and obviously that means that they'd be missing out on news from, you know, the Herald or the Daily Telegraph or whatever altogether. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that readership that we should be worried about. If a print edition goes online, I guess the question then is, will readers go online or switch to another newspaper? I think it really depends on... I mean, it could depend on the age of the audience. There are some that are sort of wedded to a print product and they'll just migrate to a, whichever print product is still available. Uh, but there are some that are more wedded to a particular masthead and I suppose they might be encouraged to, to migrate online. Given the relative lack of competition in the Australian media market like up to around 70% of the market is controlled, arguably, by one empire. What would the media landscape look like without Fairfax Papers midweek? Paddy? I suppose we're about to find out. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I mean, personally, I'm now I think I've pretty much, well, I have actually cancelled my print subscription and I'm now digital uh, as a reader and I enjoy it more because I can share and comment. And the quality of the journalism... Um, from reporters that I know and trust um, is still excellent. Uh, and uh, the question is how many of them will be left um, once the print advertising revenue disappears? And my understanding is that it's still a very substantial contributor to the earnings of both Fairfax and News. And so uh, I saw Chris Mitchell this week, you know, the former editor of The Australian, complaining that the um, that Fairfax was effectively walking away from print and and that the Oz, although it you know presumably is still making a loss um, nevertheless uh, was getting a hell of a lot of a lot of income and revenue from uh, from print advertising and that's supporting you know um, quality journalism and and you know decent wages for reporters still so I mean I think it's a you know if we're he- heading over the cliff um, it's a pretty it's pretty scary as to how many how many journalists are going to remain employed what we're looking at here really is a one newspaper town and unfortunately the newspapers that are going to be left Monday to Friday are all Murdoch papers um, already in you've got the Courier Mail in Brisbane that's a monopoly market there you've got the uh, the Adelaide, Adelaide Advertiser in, in South Australia, Monopoly Market there, yeah. and, uh, and and it'll be the Herald Sun and the Daily Telly that will be left. And uh, as as we all know, I mean, the, the agenda-driven um, reporting and especially commentary in these papers is absolutely outrageous. And uh, But the good thing about all this is that their power is diminishing, as evinced by three elections, which they called 
heavily Queensland, Federal and, and, uh, and Victoria, the last three, and they really plumped and uh, got it wrong. We'll have to leave it there. That's all for Fourth Estate tonight. My name's Marcus Costello. Thanks very much for joining me, Paddy Manning, Michaela Whitbon, and Michael West. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. Up next is On the Money. My name's Marcus Costello. You can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs>